You're listening to Comedy Central. From Trevor's couch in New York City to Arsenio's couch somewhere in L.A., this is our 2021 For Your Emmy Consideration Conversation. Hey, dude, what's up? What's going on, Arsenio Hall? I want to start just by saying, I don't know if I've actually said this to you, even though I'm sure you see it in my eyes. Uh, so proud of you and happy for you, brother. What you've done is amazing. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. And you know, I've said this to you, but I'll say it to you on camera again. Part of the reason I'm here is because of you. And so I feel like this is, this is a wonderful full circle for me because now I'm finally being interviewed by Arsenio Hall. Do you know how hard this was for me? I had to come all the way from Africa. I had to take over a television show. I had to do it for six years just to get Arsenio Hall to interview me. That's, that's my journey. That's how hard it's been for me. Let's uh, jump on that journey for a second. Your mom, how is your mom reacting to everything that's going on with you, especially more recently? Oh, she doesn't react. Yeah, that's, that's the honest truth. I, I always try and explain this to people, but there are two things about my life that, that, I, that I'm eternally grateful for and, and, um, and I appreciate because of how normal they are. And that is number one, my mom, my grandmother, most of my family have never really been people who have been fame driven in any way, shape or form. And secondly, in a strange way in South Africa, we didn't, we never had Hollywood. We never had that kind of culture. So it's very much like in South Africa, people aren't like, oh, he's famous. They'll just be like, there's Trevor. Yeah, we see Trevor, hey Trevor. That's how it is with me, you know? So, so when I go home, you know, both metaphorically home as into the country, but then like home to, to my parents' house, to my mom's house, um, yeah, it's, 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 it's just me being me again, you know? So my mom, she likes to hear random stories that people will tell me. And every now and again, a stranger comes up to her and says, your son did this, or I like this thing your son did. And she's like, I'm, I'm happy that you're happy. But other than that, she doesn't react. See, that shocks me because my mother's into what you do. <laughs> do you remember where you were when you first saw The Daily Show and were you a fan? I remember exactly where I was when I first saw The Daily Show. So I was in Pasadena, California. And I just moved into a little one bedroom apartment. And I was with my friend, David Meyer, who works with me on The Daily Show now. And we had just got my cable plugged in. And he was, he was like, oh, what's the time? And he's like, it's almost 11. He's like, oh, my favorite show's almost on. And he went to The Daily Show. And I remember the show started. And I was like, yo, this guy's about to make me watch the news. Cause we had just like moved some of my stuff in. We, and this guy's like my favorite show. And, he, and I was like, yo, this guy just put on the news at 11 o'clock at night. I was like, yo, I don't know if we're gonna be friends for much longer. And what was strange to me was at that moment, I'd realized I had seen a snippet of the show before that, but in, 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 the, in the rest of the world, The Daily Show used to air on CNN. So I had seen a little bit of Jon Stewart on CNN and I was just like, yo, this guy clearly doesn't care about his job. He doesn't care about like what he does. He just, he's like the wild child of CNN. I didn't know, you know, I saw a snippet and I was just like, man, that news anchor is crazy. I had no clue, genuinely had no clue what The Daily Show meant in America. And, and I think I'm glad, I'm glad that I didn't because then my first conversation with Jon Stewart probably would have been one where I would have been terrified. Whereas now it was really like a comic calling a comic and you know better than anyone, one thing comedians have around the world is a general shared respect for comedians. 
And so when he called me, it was like, yo, I'm a comedian from America. He didn't even say like, I am the John Stewart. He was just like, hey, my name is John Stewart. I don't know if you've heard of me. And I've got a little show called The Daily Show. I don't know if you've heard of it. And I wondered if we could do something together. And so, yeah, I'm glad that I didn't have that reverence for the show because maybe I wouldn't have been, I would have been afraid to, to work with him. And maybe I would have been afraid to change things once I took over. You know, you said in that response, this guy must not care about his job. In my time, I was probably considered a guy with a lot of intestinal fortitude on the air. But I watch you, and I often say, Trevor don't really care about his job. And she approached some things that I'd be afraid to approach. What won't you touch? And are you ever afraid? Yeah, I'm always afraid. Are you kidding me? I'm always afraid. My, my team and I will sit around, and now we do it virtually, but we'd sit around a table, and then we'd all go like, so are we doing this? Are we touching this? We're gonna talk about this. You know there's gonna be fire. You know, and I'd say to everyone, I'd be like, okay, I hope your social media accounts are ready. I hope, you know, I hope everybody's ready for their families to start calling, because a, a lot of the topics are sensitive. You know, there's, there's very few topics in politics that are not going to be sensitive. And then when you multiply that with comedy, you are now in a world where you're not just juggling, which is already something that's difficult to do. You're basically juggling little bombs, you know? So one of those bombs could explode at any moment. And, and that's what it feels like. And so, yeah, beyond making sure that we are as clear as possible in what we're putting out on the show, I always encourage the team to make that show. I go like, guys, if we're afraid, imagine how scared the audience is. If we're afraid to broach this topic, if we're afraid to have this conversation, how much more afraid are people on the streets, people in an office, people in a school? They're terrified of having this conversation. They're thinking like, do we get fired? Do we get slandered? Do we get beaten up? Do we... So I go like, so if we can't have the conversation, then who can? And so I go, let's do it. Let's do it every single time. And, and, and as long as we can do it thoughtfully, as long as we can do it with, with measure and we've, and we've really applied ourselves, then I go, look, if the fire's gonna come, the fire's gonna come. But at least we know that we stand behind the work we've put into it, then we'll do it. Are you very thin-skinned? How, how do you deal with the criticism when people think you've gone too far? So here's the thing. I, I don't know if I'm thin-skinned or thick-skinned. What I do know is I heal quickly. Maybe that's what it is. I'm thin-skinned, but I heal quickly. A lot of the time what people say to me affects me. It'll hurt me, it'll hurt my feelings. Especially when I feel like people don't give me a fair, a, a fair shot. Because I think I give people a fair shot, you know? I'm the kind of person who I've had Republicans on my show and I'm not like just slinging things at them. I'm not just cussing them out. I'm like, no, I'm like, I'll talk to anybody. I'll give anybody a fair shot. Um, that's the world I grew up in. And so sometimes when people say that stuff about me, I'll go like, but that's not what I said. Or if someone like, you know, edits a sentence and they just use the last bit, I'm like, that's not the, that's not the full sentence. I literally said this before that. Yeah, that gets to me. But... I heal very quickly. I go like, okay, well, that was that. And then what's gonna happen tomorrow? What's gonna happen the next day? Because I, I think I've learned that I can't exist in a space of constantly like beating myself up for all the things that have been said about me or the things that I've done. And I also can't hold myself too high for all the successes that I've had. So I go, enjoy it for today, suffer in this moment, and then you move on because you're gonna have to be here tomorrow. What's the team like? Do you have women on the team? Do you have black writers on the team. Hey, I started in 89. And not only was I the first black host, that's if you don't count Pat Sajak, not only was I the only black host, but there were no black writers in late night. That was a struggle. Um, I wanted women on my staff, so I got 
the point of view of all of America. I wanted my staff really mixed up. So that was a lot of work. Tell me about your staff. So I, I was lucky in that I worked with Jon Stewart before he left, before he even announced he was leaving. So I was on the Jon Stewart team. So I knew the people in the building. I was like an adopted kid coming into the building, you know? And so what was really unique about taking over The Daily Show was unlike other shows, um, I didn't have the luxury, nor did I have the pressure of having to build an entirely new team from scratch. And the reason I say it's luxury and the pressure is because the luxury of building a new team is that you can tailor make a team for yourself. The pressure is that you have to tailor make a team for yourself and get things up and running and have it be successful. And so that became the journey that we were on. What is the old and what is the new and what are we working with in the middle that's gonna get us there? Because it won't change overnight. And so with the team, what was really nice was I got to adopt a team that also adopted me. And so the team comprises of everyone. I've tried to make it as everyone as possible, you know? Some people are even shocked when I tell them, I'm like, yeah, we've even got people in the building who are Republican. Then they're like, what? And it's like, yeah, I'm like, I don't wanna live in a bubble of not knowing what anyone thinks. I also don't wanna live in a world where I cannot disagree with somebody who I still see as a human being and even as a friend. And so I like to challenge my ideas against somebody who I respect, you know, to have a full-fledged discussion and an argument with someone and go like, I don't agree with you, but let's hash this thing out. And I know that when I get to the place where I can convince them or where I can find, a, you know, like a, like a common ground, then I know that this is real common ground. It's not my idea of common ground because they're a real person. So this is what I love about working with the people that I work with is that we're having honest conversations. You know, we, we I, I always encourage that in the workplace. I go, yo man, let's fight. If we're gonna fight, let's fight. If we're gonna argue, let's argue. Let's get into the nitty gritty, but let's trust each other, you know? So if, if there are women in the building who feel like there's a topic that I'm not covering correctly or there's a way that I could be doing it better, I go like, tell me. Don't just sit there and be like, man, I wish Trevor would just tell me, you know? Maybe I'll be hurt, most likely I won't because I appreciate good criticism, I appreciate feedback. So if someone says, hey man, I think we could be doing a better job with this, I'm like, well then let's do a better job. That's why you're, you're, you're a part of this team, to make sure we do a better job. As a comic, are you constantly struggling to keep it funny? Oh, is that the, that the end of the question? You killed me there. Yeah, because, because I, you know, I, I, get, I get so much wonderful, serious content from you when I watch yeah, the show. Yeah. I get to hear opinions, but sometimes I wonder how you're gonna turn that corner. How, how are you gonna keep it funny or do you even care? I think initially, because I was just trying to get a show moving and get a show going, I adopted a little bit of that idea of how to do the comedy for the show. But as an African, that's not how we tell stories, you know? That's not how we laugh, you know? And that's the same thing African-Americans have. If you are from the continent in any way, shape or form, we, we are storytellers first. We have conversations, we share. And I don't care if it's a funeral, a wedding, a family get together, or just strangers meeting in a, in a common space. One thing that'll be consistent is that there will be a laugh and there'll be pain and there'll be seriousness and there'll be intensity, but there will always be a laugh and the laugh comes naturally. And so what I've started to do and I've started to become more comfortable doing is going, you know what? I'm not looking for the laugh. The laugh will look for me. It'll find me in the moments, you know? And, and it's people like Dave Chappelle who helped me with that. You know, I remember working with Dave Chappelle at, at Radio City Music Hall and he said, hey, I want you to come and headline the show with me. And I was like, you don't, you, I said, you mean open for you? And he said, no. 
I wanted to be Dave Chappelle and Trevor Noah. And when we were backstage, he, he, he said to me, he said, you know what I want you to focus on, man, that, 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 that you must never take for granted is what you have to say. He said, anyone can be funny. Anyone can tell a joke, but not everyone has something to say. And so he said, I, I want you to not run away from what you have to say. I know it's scary, but don't run away from it. And I said, but what about the laugh? We're comedians. He's like, the laugh will always be there. You're funny, dude. I know the laugh is always gonna come. You know the laugh is always gonna come. You've just gotta believe that what you have to say is worth hearing and then worry about the jokes after. And, and so that's slowly what the evolution of the show has become in that I, I wanna tell the truth to the audience. I wanna connect with the human beings on the other side of the lens. And I think the pandemic has only exacerbated that. It's made it, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's improved my, my, my wanting to have a connection with people on the other side. And then the laugh will come because the laugh is always there. It's always waiting to happen. And, 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 and that's something that I've embraced. Being a black man, guys, you're a black man and you're a black man who's not from America. You know, when I first started, I remember having a meeting the first week and some Paramount executives sat in the meeting and I was talking about doing two songs. I wanted to break Don't Be Cruel and My Prerogative by wow. Bobby Brown. And um, an executive from Paramount looked at me and said, I'm sure she's very talented, but I don't know if she can hold two songs. <laughs> and, and that's that's when it dawned on me, oh my gosh, this is gonna be so hard. I'm sure it's tough for you. It's different than it is for John. It's different than it is for Letterman. Tell me a little bit about being an African black host. Cause I know a, a lot of black Americans are like, well, he ain't from here though. That brother don't think like us. You know, he ain't from Philly. You know, so you're caught between a rock and a hard place in many ways. Talk about that. Black people are black people, man. Everywhere you go on the planet, black people are black people. It is not to say that black people are a monolith, but it is rather to say that as, as diverse and as broad as black people are, unfortunately, there is one experience that has connected black people and that has been oppression. And so you might go, oh, he's not from Philly. And you might go like, man, what, what does he know? What does he know about this kind of rap? Or what does he know about this? Or what does he know about that? And it's like, yes, but when we talk about police, all of a sudden we all speak the same language. We all have similar experiences. When we hear that siren, we all have that moment where we're like, is that for us? Those are things that we share, whether we like it or not. These are not even things that we, we wish to opt into. You know, this isn't a club that you wish to subscribe to. It's one where you're automatically subscribed and there's no unsubscribe email that ever arrives for you. And so one of the things that I have been eternally grateful for is that black Americans went, who is this guy? You know, it was not like people were just gonna be like, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll take it. They're like, no, who is this guy? And over time, I think through the show and through the conversations that we've had both internally and externally, people started to see who I am. People started to see who the show is, what the show is. And, and, and that is, in my opinion, a vehicle that speaks to what's happening in, in America and in and around the world, but also focuses specifically on what is happening to black people. Because a lot of the time, you know, people in America and people, they'll be like, oh, but come on, why? It doesn't always have to be about race. And, those, and then it's like, when you're black, it does. Because when you're black, your race is always at the front. 
You know, you don't, you don't get to opt out of those moments. You don't get to opt out of being followed around a store. You don't get to, get to opt out of being suspected. You don't get to opt out of being seen as threat. You don't get to opt out of those things. And so there is a different point of view in seeing the experience. One of my favorite moments was, was during the protests that were happening in and around America after George Floyd's murder. And that was white people genuinely saying, I did not know. I thought, I thought black people were making this up. And I was like, yeah, and that is the truth of your experience. You're not lying the same way black people are not lying. But until you saw it in some of the worst ways possible, you didn't believe it. And so in that experience, I've come to learn black and white, by the way, that you know better than anyone. Doing this type of show, and you multiply that by politics as well, is all about context. It's about getting to know people. You know, when Arsenio Hall makes a joke on the show with an artist, the artist knows who Arsenio is and they know where you're coming from. And so when you're building a new relationship with an audience, they have to get to know you. And so whether it's discussions about class, whether it's discussions about oppression in terms of LGBTQ rights, whether it's about discussions about race, these are things that are unfortunately all too familiar for me. And I think over time, my audience has gone, where this guy comes from has started to matter less than where he's trying to go with us as an audience. You always say to me, you, you start sentences off. Since the day I met you, you start some sentences off with, you know what I'm, you know where I'm coming from. You know, and, and I don't always know because I did it back when I rode a horse to Paramount. You know, you <laughs> probably arrived in a Tesla. And um, it was a lot different than like, for instance, you know, we have the term linear. I used to prepare all day for my hour. Right. And the social relevance across all platforms has been mind-blowing to me as I watch. Uh, talk a little bit about that and how that came about. One of the things that I've always loved in the world that I've grown up in is how boundless technology can be. Jon Stewart first discovered me watching a YouTube video, you know? The executives who, some of them I still work with today, they're the ones who said, hey, John, you need to watch this. That's on YouTube. I filmed that in another country. He's watching that, connected me to him. That would have never happened a decade earlier. And for me, I've always appreciated the tools of technology and how you can use them to get to people as opposed to assuming everybody will get to you. And so in the same way that Costco comes and gives you a sample, trusting that you will enjoy it so much that you might buy a crate that'll last you a year, I figure why not do the same thing? Because at the end of the day, I don't operate from a space of, of hubris. I don't think that you have to watch my show. I hope that you will watch my show. I hope that you'll enjoy my show, but I also know I need to find the people who will enjoy my show because I'm not making a show for everybody. Nor am I trying to make a show for everybody. I'm trying to make a show that as many people as possible will enjoy and want to watch. And so one of the first things I did when I took over The Daily Show was reimagining the conversation around where The Daily Show was. You know, and, and what was really lucky was Comedy Central was on board because a lot of, as you said, linear networks were terrified of this. They're like, no, our content is, is on the channel. That's the only place the content can be on. And, and I was lucky that I, I, I have partners at Comedy Central who say to me, hey, we're always gonna make content. The platform might change all the time. And so very early on, I said, we need to ramp up what we're doing on Twitter. We need to ramp up what we're doing on Instagram. Let's find the people. Kids are on Snapchat. Are we on that? I remember when TikTok first started, you know, and Ramin, who runs our digital division, he came up to me and he said to me, 
He's like, yo, do you want to do a TikTok? And I was like, man, are you joking? Like, you messing with me right now? Now you're just making up names. Snapchat, TikTok, flip-flop. I was like, man, I see what you're doing. And he's like, no, this is real. Do you want to make one? And he got into it early and he was tracking it. And he was like, I think this thing is going to be big. And, and I said, well, is there a way we could do something on it? And he's like, if we can find a way to do it authentically, we will. And that was the key. We don't just take our content and throw it out there onto these platforms. We look at how we can create content that works for those platforms to engage with the people who are on those platforms. And so I have people in the street who come up to me and they're like, yo, Trevor, I love your show, man. I watch it every day on Facebook. Hey, Trevor, man, yo, big fan, YouTube, man. I'm always on your YouTube. Hey, Trevor, love your show on uh, Instagram, buddy, good job. I go like, where you find me is becoming less relevant than the fact that you do. You just want the people to consume what you're doing and you wanna connect with them as an audience. And so, I mean, we live in a world now where even presidents tweet. So who am I as a late, late night talk show host to, to not move with the times as well? You've kind of been motivating people to action. Uh, let's start with the general election. You somehow found out that we needed more volunteers around the country. How did you get people to start actually doing things beyond the show themselves and not just being fans of the show? Oh, I asked them. It was as simple as that. You know, the, the wonderful thing about human beings, Arsenio, is that human beings are a lot more wonderful than the media and social media would have you believe, you know? Social media in many ways for me is like, is like dogs on chains. You ever seen dogs when they're on chains and they're at each other? And then you take them off the chain and they'll just like, oh man, what's going on, man? You know, I think a lot of these platforms gives a, give us a false perception of humanity in and of itself. Humanity is not perfect, but man, I think we strive to be connected as people. We strive to do for one another. And one of the things I came to realize was that I was lucky enough to have uh, like an audience that wanted to do more. And so when it came to volunteering for the election, because old people who were generally poll workers couldn't go and work at the polls because of the coronavirus, I said to my audience, hey, are you young? Do you want to earn a little bit of cash on the side? Well, they need poll workers out there. You can do this job. And they started signing up. And that was one of the first instances where I realized, you know, how people could make a difference. What I've come to realize with the show is we have an opportunity to give a platform to worthy causes. And so it really doesn't hurt me to do it. Why not just mention the cause? Why not just tell the people at home that there's a cause that may be aligned with what they want to do and let them find the cause through me. I become the conduit. And so that's what it's become. And it's been amazing to see whether it's helping rescue shelters with pets, you know, whether it's been getting people to vote, whether it's been helping families in need during coronavirus and a pandemic where they don't get food and they don't have an income, you know, whether it's been helping kids get technology for schooling, with all of these things. I've come to realize that my audience is interested in some way, shape or form. Oftentimes they just don't know where to begin putting their efforts. And so I've been lucky enough to be the middleman in helping some of these things happen. I notice that you sell hoodies. I had to Google the word monochromatic to find out what kind of hoodie that was. <laughs> <laughs> I saw a number and it said that there was like $3 million garnered by you in these efforts. Is that anything close to true? Well, I, I, don't, I don't keep track of the numbers, to be honest with you. And, and I think part of the reason is because I go, it's not me. 
It's, it's the audience. They're doing the work. I'm literally just passing on a message. So I have no business even as Trevor going, yeah, I've raised, I haven't raised anything. The people have raised the money. I've just asked them to help worthy causes and the causes luckily have been helped by them. So honestly, I'm, I, I don't track it. I don't know. I just do my best to find out who needs what in which cause and, 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 and where we can help people out. And then we get that conversation going. Hey, the first time I ever saw you, I stopped by Eddie Murphy's house and I'm thinking, we'll probably smoke a joint and watch the playoffs. This is a long time ago. And I look up at Eddie's big screen in his backyard and you're on it. And it's your first stand-up. And you were hilarious. And ever since that moment, I've watched you evolve and become such an important voice in philanthropic endeavors, in politics. Do you get a lot of people who who love to laugh with you. Do you get a lot of people who say, shut up and dribble? You know, that, that whole syndrome. Do they want you, Trevor, just make us laugh, man. Oh yeah, definitely. Here's the simplest rule, Arsenio, that I've learned in this business, you know, doing what I do. Everybody loves what you have to say until you have something to say about them. <laughs> Everybody will tell me that You've got great opinions and I love the way you think and that was fantastic the way you handled that until you speak about them. And all of a sudden then they're like, you don't know what you're talking about. You need to shut up. You need to just make jokes. What do you know? Why are you even involved in politics? You're just a comedian. And then I always say to them, I say, do you know where the word politic even comes from? Do you understand that that word Poly means of the people. In the Greek, it is literally designed for the people, but you've been tricked, especially in America, into believing that it is this, this realm of, of, of only the, the, the upper echelons, the politicians are the ones who do politics, but no, the people, the people are politics. The politicians are meant to enact what the people wish them to enact. Political is you. Everything that you do in your life is gonna be affected by politics. How your road gets fixed or doesn't get fixed whether you get broadband or don't get broadband, you know, how much you're paying for your healthcare, whether your kids have pre-K or not, whether your partner can take time off from work when you have a child, all of these things are politics. And so you can choose to not engage in politics, but best believe politics is gonna engage in you. And so whenever people say that, they go like, why don't you just make jokes? And why don't you just, I'm like, that is exactly what I'm doing. But I understand as is normal in life, people love laughing until the laugh is aimed at them. Then it's not funny and you're not a comedian. You need to shut the hell up. I saw an interview. You were talking to a young black woman. I think it was on YouTube. And you said to her, I want everyone on my show. I invite everyone, but some of them won't come. What is that about? Are there people afraid? Are, are there people uh, frightened that they'll be ambushed? Are you too smart for them to sit with? What, what, why did you say that? No, you know what I think happened is uh, once Donald Trump became president, America's already divided politics became completely battle lines drawn. And now it was no one could be seen to be talking to anybody who was not like them. It was now an all or nothing. I mean, you're seeing it now even today, even in the Republican Party, you're seeing that today. If you do not agree with Donald Trump, you're out of the Republican Party. Not are you still a Republican, but you don't like what he said? No, either you're all in or you're out. If I was a Republican, I'd be scared of living in that world because you wanna live in a world where you can have a differing opinion and still be part of a thing. I mean, that's whether it's being a part of a, a family, 
a friendship, a community, a team, that's going to be life. You're going to disagree on certain things, but you have more in common than you have that separates you. And so you move in the same direction. But that's not what politics has become. I want to engage with you when you don't agree with me. I want to have a discussion with you. I want to have a constructive argument with you. Because I think in doing that in the right ways, in in a space where you're not trying to just drum up clicks and views, where you're really having a discussion, I do believe that viewers can experience that discussion through you. They experience that discussion vicariously because you're engaging in it. A testament to your power and your voice, man. When we were all home depressed, you released that 18-minute post. There was George Floyd. There was Ahmaud Arbery. So much was going on. What was going through your mind and what was in your heart when you did that? Man, I was sad is the best way to put it. You know, I was sad not just because of what was happening, but I was sad because of the conversations in and around what was happening. I think oftentimes one of the biggest disservices American news does is that because it is a a, a ratings-driven institution, it necessarily has to move towards the ratings. And so oftentimes I find news in America doesn't provide people with context. And without context, no news really makes sense. When the protests were happening, I was, I was so intrigued by how the conversation was just, it's just like black and white, you know, both literally and figuratively. It was just like looting and rioting, this is bad. You know, and it was just like, ah, oh, the police, it's great. And this is bad, this is good, this is... And I was like, but what is, what is the deeper conversation that nobody's having here? Why are we not discussing the hows? Not what is happening, but how we got to this place. And we weren't on the air that week. And I was sitting at home and I remember, man, I was just watching everything take place, you know? Just seeing George Floyd. And then I saw the riots in Minneapolis. And then, you know, we saw the stories unfold. And then we saw Amy Cooper. And that was the lady in the park who threatened to call the cops, or in fact, called the cops on Christian Cooper, the black man who was birdwatching, who asked her to please put her dog on, on, on a leash because that was a birdwatching area. And I, I remember thinking about how all those things were connected. And, and maybe, maybe I was lucky that I wasn't on the show that week because I didn't have the opportunity to speak. I had to spend most of my time thinking. I had to see everything happen and I just had to think. I was an audience member like everybody else. I was watching America burn, but I was also watching America in pain. I was watching America trying to express itself. I was watching a a large swath of America saying, how long do we have to endure this? When will we be heard? When will we be seen? And I'm sitting there going, man, this, this isn't just painful. It reminds me of home. How have I traveled so many thousands of miles to end up in the same place? And so I found myself sitting on the couch and I'd been talking to friends and I'd been pondering all of this. And I was just like, you know, I'm just gonna, I just wanna like talk to, to some of the people I speak to, some of the people who watch the show, some of the people who I feel like I formed a relationship with, with many, many parts of my audience. And I honestly just wanted to talk to them as if they were there with me. And that's, that's really what that was. It was incredible, man, and it was so important to us at home going through what you were going through, and I'm so glad to see you 
do important things like that when you feel it in your heart. I, I was probably at home the same day doing a TikTok video with my son and you were doing something to help the world heal. And, and we all appreciate that, man. A lot of the things you do, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, whatever that old cliche is. I've seen you do things and it's almost like you're this trailblazer who gives the other late night hosts permission to touch something, whether it's CP time. Ah, hello. Welcome to CP time. Or Dual saying it was about black hair. Yeah. I'd never seen anybody mess with that until you did. Are you complimented by that? Or, or I know I, I would become Petty Duke immediately, <laughs> you know, and be mad. But, but how do you see that when you look and you say, hey, I, I did that already, <laughs> you know, how does that feel? I feel like every conversation is continuously happening and you all just jump into it at a specific place and time. There is no idea that I've had in and around a conversation that's an issue that I would ever claim as my own. Police brutality, that was around long before me and I hope it won't be around long after I am gone. You know, black people being discriminated against in the workplace or in society, that was around long before me and I hope it won't be around long after I'm gone. Women experiencing being unsafe, whether it's in a work environment or in a, in a home environment or, or just even in public, that was around long before me and I hope it won't be around long after I am gone. I think what we're constantly doing is tapping in and having these conversations. And so maybe in this moment in time, there are moments where I might have broached the topic first, but man, I hope everybody gets into the conversation because I'm, I'm not here for the kudos of that. I do not care for that. I want us to have the conversation. Otherwise, I'm, I'm just that one person screaming on the street corner. You're a thousand people screaming on a street corner. Well, that's a moment of change. And so, you know, I, I remember one of my favorite stories was um, Martin Luther King Jr. when he went down to Selma. And he, for the life of him, could not get black people to march with him. He could not. And they were like, yo, we're afraid of you, Martin. They were like, these white folk do not like you. They do not like what you represent and you're bringing trouble here to us by coming and involving us in this thing. And he was like, but you're oppressed. They're like, yeah, we're oppressed, but we're gonna get more oppressed if we do this thing with you. And it was interesting to me to see how he had to get them involved in the conversation. He had to get them to march. And then it was the kids who ended up marching. You know, it was the kids who ended up coming out in full force. And then some of the parents were angry that the kids were involved and all of this was happening. And then the, you started seeing it around the country and these things unfold. I don't think anybody, anybody should wish to claim any type of movement or anything. You should try to be a leader, definitely. You should try to lead, you should try to create conversation. But for me, honestly, I've never gone, Ah, that's, that's a thing. I, I don't think of it like that in that way when it's an issue. You know, when it's a joke as a comedian, don't get me wrong, as comedians we'll always be like, that was a joke I took up, come on, that was my premise. But I mean, that happens all the time. You know it better than anyone, you know? I used to, rem I remember when Chris Rock came to South Africa in, I think it was like 2014, maybe 2013, for like his first tour in South Africa. And I'll never forget this. I was in a row of comedians, my best friends, we're sitting there and Chris Rock went into a bit that my friend had been writing for like six months. And I turned and I was like, yo, I was like, Chris Rock stole your joke. And we started laughing so hard because we knew Chris Rock didn't steal his joke. 
But he was devastated because he's like, now that Chris Rock has done it, he can never do it. And and we understand, you know, as comedians, we laugh, you, you get how it is. It's like, yeah, man, someone has an idea, you have an idea, there's a premise and so on and so forth. That's the kind of thing where comedians will be like, oh man, I'm angry that you said that I wanted to say it or there's a thing like, but when it comes to issues, I hope everybody's talking about it. I hope I'm not the first, but I more, more, most certainly hope that I'm not the last. It's nice to know that we were first, don't get me wrong, but I'm more than happy that somebody else is doing it second or third or fourth or whatever. I'm more than happy because at the end of the day, that's what you hope will happen with issues. With news stories, we're all gonna do them. With issues, I hope that we all do them. You know, your show, to a fan, your show is kind of like friends. You have this family, this group of friends. You know, you have Joey and Rachel, you, you know, Dulce, Jordan, I knew Roy because he's a stand-up, Desi, Ronnie, Mike, Talk about your team, your little comedy family, your correspondence. Uh, that's something that The Daily Show does very well. Not every late night host has that family of friends. Oh yeah, that's, that's one of the things that I loved and I adopted from Jon Stewart. You know, that was the, the relationship that you can create with people who have differing points of views and the ability to showcase different points of views or ideas on your show. You know, I myself as Trevor was a contributor. I came on the show and I would contribute my opinion to The Daily Show and Jon Stewart would be there as my foil. And so one thing I loved was that relationship and so I wanted to continuously create that. And so, you know, that, 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 that was the team. And, and so we've had new additions to the team, but Roy has been there from the very beginning, from day one. I remember I watched a little bit of his comedy and I was, called Roy out as I like, come on out to New York for an audition. And he came out on the night before he was doing a set at the Comedy Cellar and I went to watch him and immediately after the set, I was like, you've got the job. And he's like, but I'm gonna come to the audition tomorrow. I said, yeah, you'll come, but you've got the job. Same thing happened with Michael Costa. I went out to LA, I saw him performing. I was like, this guy's got the job. And that was one of those instances where with Michael Costa, it was my executive producer, Jen Flans, who was like, this guy's special. And I was like, is he though? She's like, this guy's special, man. He's got something. And I happened to be in LA. And so I went to the comedy club to watch him. He didn't even know I was there. I was like, all right, this guy's got it, let's go. You know, and so all of these people have been interesting in the way we come to meet them, how I come to know them as human beings. Ronnie Chang, I met in Edinburgh, Scotland, doing a comedy festival. That's how I met Ronnie Chang. And I was like, this dude is one of the craziest funny people I've ever met. And I remember saying to him in Scotland, I don't know when, I don't know how, but one day I hope I get to work with you. And so let me get your number and let's see where the world takes us. And then I think two or three years later, he got a call from me saying, yo, do you want to try something crazy? And then Ronnie did, and he joined the show. And so the journey has been wonderful. You know, Desi Lydic, who's just become like one of my bulwarks on the show, is just like, where she's like, I know she can smash anything. She, she's one of the most talented performers and actresses I've ever come across, you know? Dulce, one of the smartest people, fluent in Spanish. All of the people on the show have that about them. There's a different element that they use to touch the show with. And, and I really appreciate that because I think it makes the show a little bit more dynamic in that it's not always Trevor just telling you what he thinks or how he sees the world. I've got all of these correspondents and my team and my family, as you say, where they can also give an opinion and we can have a fight as friends and we can talk about what we're experiencing in the world. Do your correspondents, because I know Dulce was a stand-up, I think. Yeah. Uh, do they all come in the writer's room? Do they participate yeah, in, in yeah, all yeah. of that stuff? Or are yeah, they just they talent? No, they will, they will. So they'll, they, they don't just participate. Oftentimes they will be the, the, the originator of the idea, you know, or if it comes the other way around, we'll have an idea and then they will go off with writers and they will continuously punch it up and write it for themselves. They'll create 
the thing that they will then end up putting on screen. And so I've, I've always been really focused on making sure that the correspondents are comfortable with what they are portraying on screen because it's politics. I don't want somebody going on screen and then just, you know, selling themselves down the river. No, I want you to be confident in what you're saying. And so, you know, even if you're playing an arch character, play it the way you would like to play it. Let's get this thing going and let's, let's, let me give you the best possible platform in the same way that I was afforded. Here's something I've noticed as a comic and as a fan. First of all, where are you sitting? Where is that? If we turn the camera around, it, it, that's the corner of your apartment? What is that? Yeah, this is, a, this is a corner little spot in my apartment where I had this place because I wanted to play video games here and then read books here. And I was like, I want my little nook to do that. My tiny little space in New York where it's just like my little sanctuary. And then the pandemic hit and then I was going around my apartment looking for places that didn't have an echo or didn't have like, just like sound, like sirens bouncing off of windows or you know what I mean? And then I was like, oh, I guess I, guess I can give up like my little reading, my little sanctuary. Um, and maybe it's partially because this is where I feel the safest. This is where I feel cozy in my vibe. And this is where I feel like it's me and you. You know, that's all it is. It's me and it's you. There's nothing else that's happening here. And, and so, yeah, that's, that's how this little spot came to be. And it's tiny, you know, and it's cramped. And I like it because it makes me go like, no, this is, this is the intimacy I'm looking for. You're gonna miss those hoodies when you have to go back. And, and when do you go back? When do you put on the suit and the leather shoes and go back? I might never. I might never put on the suit or the leather shoes or anything. I, I don't know. You know, that, that's, that's also something that's been, that's been liberating us. And I was like, I remember when I met, I met a, a young kid, maybe he's like 12 years old, with his mom. And I think I was in Queens or somewhere. And, and he bumped into me in the streets and he's like, hey man, are you Trevor Noah? And I was like, yeah. And he recognized me even though I had my mask on. And he said, oh man, I'm such a big fan. His mom was like, he loves your show. And I let him watch it even though it's late. And you know, he loves this, he loves politics, loves that, loves this. And then he said, man, it's so cool that like you're doing late night and you're doing the show and like you're talking to Obama and then we've all got Afros. And this kid had like a little Afro as well, you know? And he was just so happy. And his mom said to me, she was like, yeah, man. She's like, he was so happy when you grew your Afro because he couldn't cut his hair and you couldn't cut your hair. And now here you both were in this world with Afros. And I didn't realize how long it had been since I allowed myself to grow my hair out. Because for so long, I had also adopted the ideas without even realizing it of what professional hair looks like. Well, I mean, that's nice, but when are you gonna look respectable, Trev? When are you gonna go back to business hair? I was like, well, what is business hair? What does that mean? And so I even had to question my own conditioning to understand these things, you know? Does, does this determine what conversation I can and cannot have with you? You know, for so, for so many conversations in America and, and in many parts of the world, why a person is treated the way they are is often down to how they're dressed. Why did the cops do that to him? Well, he was wearing a hoodie. You never know with a hoodie. And it's like, so it's the hoodie? And so, I don't know, maybe there's a part of me that defiantly goes, yeah, you know what? I, I, I wanna interview the president of the United States wearing a hoodie, you know? I wanna talk to leaders. I wanna talk to business executives. I wanna talk to the most powerful people wearing a hoodie. Because a lot of people out there wear hoodies. And a lot of those people are judged because they wear hoodies. I wear hoodies. And so I go, you know what? Let the hoodie be in a space where it doesn't necessarily belong until it does. Let the hair be in a space it doesn't belong until it does. 
And that became something that I just started doing because I was just like, yeah, man, this is who I am. And I was like, if you don't accept me for who I am, then I don't want you to accept me. And so that's been a really liberating journey to be on as a human being. And I think the pandemic has stripped a lot of people of that pump and ceremony. You know, we're at home in our sweats. You can't be fancy. I know how you live now. I see the trash behind you. And I think that's a good thing. I think it's a little bit of society that's been, you know, a little bit of the, the sheen and the varnish has been taken off. We see each other a little bit more for better and for worse. And so for myself, I don't know that I'll ever go back to the suits and the leather shoes. And if I do, I do. And if I don't, I don't. But I, I will no longer think that this is something I have to do. You know, this is, not a, this is not a measure of my professionalism. I can do my job regardless of how you see me. I can do it. And so, as for going back to the studio, I mean, you know, I, I have a few surprises up my sleeve as to what that'll look like. You know, I'm working on a few things with the team and we're really excited uh, because I want it to be intentional. You know, I've always said to people, everyone goes like, when are you going back? When are you going back? When are you going back? I say, I'm never going back. I'm only moving forward. When I was doing it, man, I remember coming out in this purple jacket with ripped jeans and they called an organization called Maggot, I think the organization was called, and they did focus groups to show me that America didn't want me in ripped jeans. You know, I, re I remember how important that was. How has The Daily Show been for you as far as controlling you or approving or disapproving? How, how have they dealt with you during this pandemic? Well, the great thing is there is no The Daily Show. It's myself and my team. There is no overlord in that regard. There's nobody who, who looks over us editorially or what, no. You know, we have a fact checker to make sure that what we're saying is factually correct. You know, ironically, we're the comedy show that has a fact checker and then there's so many news shows that just say whatever they want. But yeah, we do, we have a fact checker and, and that's the main thing we focus on. I'm still trying to make a show that represents who I am. And so, you as Arsenio, you know me. I'm, I'm pretty certain when you watch The Daily Show, you're like, yeah, this is Trevor, he's performing, but this is Trevor. You know, you're not like, who's this guy? It's pretty much me. And, and so, I've been really lucky that, the, that Comedy Central has gone, no, we trust you. You go ahead, we trust you, do it. You know, so they don't go, ah, oh, dress like this, don't dress like that, your hair, your... Th no, they just go, we trust you. Do this thing and do it to the best of your ability. And so what, what that has enabled me to do is succeed by my own sword or die by my own sword. And that's been liberating and frightening at the same time, and I love it. I was passing a mall the other day and I had a strange memory. I looked up at this building and it said Sears. When I was little, those buildings said Sears and Roebuck because those two names were locked together. You couldn't have one without the other. You've mentioned your executive producer a couple times. How important is that team? My team helps me to not make the wrong decisions. I think that's what a great team is also helping you do. I don't think every decision I have is correct. And thankfully, my team sometimes will be like, whoa, that's completely wrong. And I'm like, huh, you think so? They're like, yeah, it's terrible. I'm like, oh, okay. You know, I'm, I'm not gonna be perfect every single day, nor do I wish to be. And that's what's nice about having a team is that we trust each other and we're trying to do something together. Do you and your EP argue? Do you disagree? And when you disagree, how do you decide what goes on the air? Jen Flans and I, we don't argue that much. So Jen is the showrunner and surprisingly, we have very similar tastes. I, her and I always have the same joke where we go, we're making the show for people, right? And then she's like, yeah, we're making the show for people. And that's our motto. We're making the show for people. Sometimes I have a few writers who are too politicky, 
you know, they get too deep into the politics. They forget that they're making the show for the people, but they're super smart and they're great. And I go like, whoa, 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 we gotta bring that back a little bit. You know, some of my writers only want to tell jokes. They don't want to go, go into anything deep. And that's fine as well. I go like, oh, let's, let's add a bit of brevity into this thing and let, let's have a conversation. But in terms of with myself and, and Jen, I'm very lucky that we, I think that's why we work well together is we, we both love to laugh. We both love to have meaningful conversations and we both like to create a good show. You know, I don't want you to watch The Daily Show every day thinking that like, oh, oh, black people are suffering every day and there is no other existence for a black person. Yo, man, black people have had to exist in a world where there is the paradox of their oppression and also the resilience of their joy. And so I have existed like that for a long time. You have existed like that for a long time. My family has existed. My people have existed like that. And so Jen and I always laugh. She always says Jewish people have also existed like that. You know, Jewish people for a long time have existed in a world where there is a constant threat to them as a people, but then they found themselves in humor as well. And that is a paradox. And that's what we both enjoy. And so we're constantly creating within that realm. We're going, yeah, this is terrifying. Yeah, this is scary. This is funny. This is serious. This is whatever. But we're, we're trying to make a great show. A show that I think speaks to the complexities of us as human beings and also engages in those same complexities in our audience. Because I don't want anybody to be one thing. I don't want you to be only about politics in Washington, D.C. I don't want you to be only about issues. I don't want you to be only about jokes. No one person should be only about anything. Let's laugh. Let's be serious. Let's cry. Let's think. Let's enjoy. Let's be. And then we're trying to use comedy as the tool to keep people lifted up because I don't want you to watch the show and get depressed. I think there's more than enough depressing stuff out there in the world. But, but like any conversation, like you and I as Arsenio, if we talk, we don't laugh the whole time. You know, we can, have, we can have serious conversations that get deep and they can get hard. And, but man, that laugh that lifts you out of it afterwards, you know, that's that pressure release every single time. And, and, and so that's, that's what I don't take for granted is, is, is the power of a laugh to remind you of the place that you wish to be in. And, and so that's what the room is with the writers, with the team. And so whether it's on the technical side, whether it's on the creative side, whether it's on the producing side, I'm always relying on people to help me keep this thing moving forward because I cannot be everywhere at all times. And so I have to make sure that I have people who I trust to do the job better than I would. I don't have my glasses, but check this out. In 2020, The Daily Show with Trevor Noah was nominated for six nominations, tying the franchise record for most nominations in a year. The most since you've become host, in addition to the outstanding writer for a variety series and outstanding director for a variety series, nominations mark the first time the show has received these nods under your leadership. You want to uh, stick your hand around there, <laughs> pat yourself on the back. This is amazing, man. It really is amazing. But I, but I, I uh, yeah, man, I pat everybody else on the back in the team, you know, but with their consent, of course. Yes. I told the team from day one, I said, look, there's gonna be a lot of this process where it feels like we're grinding in the dark. I pat my team on the back, from the writers to the producers to everybody who may makes the show, whoever, whoever puts the show together, I pat them on the back because I go, guys, our number one award is the people who watch the show. Please don't ever forget that. I don't want us to be a critical darling and not connect with the person who's, who's on the street. You know, when I'm walking down the street, everyone from, like a woman who's driving a UPS van to some guy on the subway to someone who's driving a BMW, they'll say, hey, 
I watched The Daily Show. Thank you for that. That was my segment. I enjoyed that moment. Thank you for doing that. With his kids who are 12 years old, their grandparents who are 60, I've had those people say, yo, thank you for what you're doing on The Daily Show. I appreciated that moment. I appreciated what you said about the Asian community. Nobody else was saying anything and you guys stepped up and we appreciate that because you have a platform. Thank you for speaking up about police brutality. Thank you for speaking up to these issues. Thanks sometimes for just making me laugh because I was having a hard day. That for me is the ultimate award. And so don't get me wrong, you love the accolades. I appreciate the accolades. You know, I never take any of that for granted, but I also don't forget the meaningful nature of who you're creating the show for and that is human beings who are consuming it, giving us their time, which I really, really, really appreciate. Dude, I know, all that said, do you feel what's in the air? What you've been doing in the last year and a half, I think you're about to become a critical darling, as you say. (laughs) Um, I just hope you'll remember me and let me keep one of your Emmys at my house, because it's coming, dog. Ah, uh, semi, even when I'm a prince, my friend, you will still be my friend. <laughs> right on, right on. Um, I would talk to you forever, but I'm old and I have to pee. Well, you go do that, my friend. You're not as old as you say you are. Um, <laughs> but thank you, man. I, no, for real. I, I just want to take a moment to say thank you, you know, because I, I, I honestly don't believe that, that any journey is undertaken alone. You know, people like using the term self-made, And I go, in order to be self-made, nothing had to exist before that. I go, I'm not self-made. I am made by all of the selves who were selfless before I came along. And so for you, I say thank you, man, because Arsenio Hall is one of those people. I saw you on TV. I didn't even think about how momentous that is. I was just like, yeah, I like that guy. I like those jokes. I like that hair. I like those people. Maybe I could do that. And you know what? Maybe I could. My mom called me before I left the house and she says, where are you going? And I said, I'm going to talk to Trevor Noah. And she said, what channel is it going to be on? (laughs) And I said, Mom, I I like him enough for it not to even have to be on TV. So uh, I appreciate this, man. This has been a lot of fun. Thank you, man. Thank you so much. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central. And stream full episodes anytime on Paramount+. Plus. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.